Before the pandemic, nationally, we saw about one in six students was chronically absent, missing 10% or more days. Now that number has grown to the extent where it appears that it's about one in four, possibly even one in three. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guests today are Emily Baylard, CEO of Everyday Labs, and her colleague, Steve Mason-Jack, Director of Marketing. In today's episode, we'll be talking about nudges in education, the problems of absenteeism, using behavioral insights to keep kids in school, and building towards better futures for the next generation. Emily and Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Brooke. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Please tell us, what are the challenges in the education that are keeping you up at night these days? For me, a big challenge that's keeping me up at night is chronic absenteeism. So we have an incredible number of students who are not regularly attending school right now. Unfortunately, these students are students who you know, have fallen behind last year. And so they're falling further behind this year. If we don't address this, we're not going to be able to help those students to catch up. So it's really critical to be able to act quickly to support these students. Yeah. Steve, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say adding to that, COVID just really exacerbated a lot of the existing systemic inequities that were driving absenteeism. And it seems like rather than getting better this year, they're actually getting worse. So it's like kind of like the train's going off the tracks a little bit, really thinking about how you get it back on track when I was just on a call with the district before this, and it's a major district on the West Coast, and they just had to cut 145 bus routes because they lost so many bus drivers. The systems in place to get kids to school are eroding things in the classroom and conditions around feeling unsafe are also exasperating the issue. And unfortunately, these systemic barriers that and conditions that Steve is talking about are having a disproportionate impact on students in vulnerable communities or most vulnerable students. There's barriers that they're facing, like for some students, their family responsibilities have shifted. So they might have more um, child care or elder care responsibilities, for example, or work responsibilities um, to be earning income to help support their family. They're experiencing, you know, higher levels of illness and COVID has had enormous impact. And also these students and their families have experienced an incredible amount of trauma over the course of the last 18 months. So you have everything from those types of barriers and you know, transportation, which Steve talked about. You also have what sometimes we think of as aversions. So you know, students who are behind or struggling academically or maybe you know, struggling behaviorally are less likely to want to attend school. So it can become a bit of a cycle. And also school climates, you know, despite really important efforts of teachers and school staff, a lot of school climates are not as welcoming as they used to be, or maybe weren't, you know, as welcoming as they needed to be even prior to COVID. And so all of that is kind of adding up to create this challenge where we have more than double, you know, kind of nationally, the average is that twice as many students are chronically absent this year as versus prior to the pandemic. Let's dig into chronic absenteeism. So as someone who went through high school and everyone misses some school here and there, I think it's hard for me to necessarily have a clear picture in my mind. Like when we talk about chronic absenteeism here, how much school do you have to miss to be defined as chronically absent? Like where is the threshold where we start to see this becoming a problem? It's 10% of days enrolled for any reason. What differentiates chronic absence from truancy, which is more 
typically understood term is that chronic absence takes into account both excused and unexcused absence. And the reason being that it's a measure of learning loss, essentially, right? Like 10% is where you really start to see academic impacts. And actually, I'd say even before that, probably around 5%, you start to see impacts. But 10% is really that cliff where it becomes drastic. And we see those academic impacts show up kind of throughout a student's journey. So as early as third grade, we see that it's impacting their literacy levels. By middle school, we see that it's impacting math scores and English language arts scores on tests as well as GPA. And then by high school, we see that students who are chronically absent are seven times more likely to drop out and not complete high school. It's also a leading indicator for students enrolling in post-secondary and college and then completing college. It's really the best leading indicator of student success. You talked about this threshold of 10%. Let's try to break that down into really digestible terms. So people listening who have kids in school, like what does 10% look like? How many school days are there in a calendar year? How many days does that mean that you're missing overall? How many days does that mean you're missing in a given month kind of thing? Like what does that look like? It's just a couple of days a month. So as a parent, I have a third grader, Jane, and a kindergartner, William. And what's just really striking is that your child might miss a couple days of school a month for a wide variety of reasons. And it doesn't feel like it's that much, but those days really add up to, as Steve said, you know, really equates to learning loss and can really impact their outcomes. And you talked about some of those impacts. So they're visible early on in reading scores and in math and, and language arts. And they're these predictors of really, really important outcomes that societally, I think we really care about, like tertiary education and employment and these kinds of things. What are the main causes of chronic absenteeism? So it's actually pretty complex. And that's what makes it a challenging issue to tackle. You know, it could be something like a student's being bullied. It could be a health condition. It could be something like we talked about earlier, where it's transportation. It could be a lack of culturally relevant instruction classrooms. So they're not identifying with the learning happening in school. It's really, yeah, it really varies. I don't know if you want to add. You hit on, on a lot of the different categories. So there's wide ranging reasons. There's also, and some of these reasons are things that can be you know, really challenging to address. So for example, um, a student who's living in poverty has a lot of systemic barriers that can result in, in chronic absenteeism, for example, or you know, who's housing insecure or food insecure. One thing that the research has surfaced in the past few years that was somewhat surprising is that there's also an, another category of that's misconceptions. So there's a number of misconceptions that parents have because the attendance isn't something that we spend a lot of time talking about. For example, example, most parents understand that like truancy is a bad thing, but don't connect the dots that if their child misses school because they're sick for a few days, that that would be a problem. There's also, again, like I said, like two days a month just doesn't feel like that much. You know, most parents don't realize that that's impacting their child's learning. And also oftentimes there's a perception that, you know, attendance you know, matters in high school, but like doesn't really matter in kindergarten and first grade. And so that can sometimes um, get in the way as well. That strikes me as the kind of area where behavioral insights really probably have a, a great opportunity to get some traction, right? So you mentioned these more systemic challenges around like transportation and busing, issues around housing insecurity and food insecurity. A good nudge can do a lot of good. Those are some pretty recalcitrant systemic issues to try to nudge. But these information gaps and kind of awareness gaps, that seems like really, really fertile ground to take a behavioral approach. So what are some of the social or cognitive dynamics that you've really seen driving these issues? One of the things kind of, again, more on the behavior behavioral side of things. Well, first of all, one thing that we've seen just really clearly in the research is that by taking 
taking an asset-based view of parents and really focusing on empowering parents with information and equipping them with tools, they're able to have a really positive impact on their students' learning. Other misconceptions that I didn't mention, things that might be unfamiliar to a behavioral scientist. So for example, the vast majority of parents believe that their child's attendance is average or better than average, which we you know see across you know many different topics across the board. And, and in part, it's because parents don't have context. It's not like we spend time chatting with other parents about our child's attendance. So we have no sense of what's normal. Simply by providing a social norm, that can provide um, really powerful, first powerful context and information to parents, as well as providing the social norm can also provide the nudging behavior that we see in other fields. We also see that parents lose track. This is something that is not unique to attendance or education, but that uh, most parents, on average parents, believe that their child has missed um, half as many days as they really have missed. That is, you know, kind of recency bias. And, you know, we kind of forget about the things that have happened four or five months ago. As a parent, I might notice that my third grader is struggling to do her math homework. I'm not very likely to connect that to the fact that, you know, two weeks ago, she had to miss school for a couple days because she was out sick. So all of those are things that are, like you said, you know, really information gaps that we're able to address. That's really helpful to have this clear example in mind of like parents underestimate by a factor of two how many days their child is actually out of school. What about on the social norm side? What are parents' expectations about what a normal number of days of school to miss looks like? And how does that compare to the reality? It's literally all over the place. It's like what we really see is even parents of students who have an extremely high number of absences. So for example, who are missing you know 30 plus days of school believe that that's about average. So I think that you know, left to our own devices, parents believe that normal is what they see. And because we you know, don't spend time talking to each other about attendance, it's really just based on their own personal experience. And what does the real average look like? In most cases, the average number of absences is somewhere around like five. You know, this varies from community to community and school district to school district, but there's an extraordinarily high percentage of students who actually have perfect attendance every year. So that's averages. When we look at this measure, you know, chronic absenteeism, so students who have missed at least 10% of days, before the pandemic nationally, we saw about one in six students was chronically absent, missing 10% or more days. Now that number has grown to the extent where it appears that it's about one in four, possibly even one in three. Wow. And considering the downstream impacts that we know to expect from that, that's a pretty big burden societally, but also individually for us to be carrying. What are some of the behavioral interventions that you've been trying out and that you've seen as offering the most promise? So probably the most promising behavioral intervention that we see is nudges. What it looks like, it's a very specific nudge that works as we've learned, as we've tested different types of nudges. So the ingredients of an effective nudge are to convey personal action actionable information to the parent. It needs to be about their specific child to share with them the number of absences that their child has accumulated to explain to them why attendance is important and help make the connection to what their child is missing out on when they're absent. And then finally, by providing them with a social norm and showing them, you know, average attendance looks like in their school within their grade level. That's kind of like the basics. We've learned there's also a lot of nuances to that. Some of these things can be kind of counterintuitive. Um, which is why we are big 
proponents of testing, you know, testing to learn. So we run a lot of randomized control trials and, you know, both A-B tests and sort of measurement control, randomized control trials with a control group. And a few of the kind of interesting things we've found, thing number one, providing a social norm is a really good idea, except when it isn't. So is um, demotivating if a student has too many absences and the average is not attainable. Again, this is something that we see in the literature in other types of areas as well. It's also demotivating if the student is outperforming the average. So we find that if we show that, indicate that a student's attendance is better than average, then their, their attendance will actually get worse. It's demotivating. It's like, oh, well, this seems like a pretty good time to maybe spend some quality time with, with family or doing other things. That's one nuance that, that's kind of interesting. There was an, an interesting study that our co-founder and chief scientist, Dr. Todd Rogers, did showed that when you send perfect attendance certificates to high school students, that actually results in higher absences. So again, praising attendance can sometimes backfire depending on how you do it. We also find that communicating about attendance today or attendance last week is nowhere near as effective as communicating about cumulative attendance. Finally, this sounds a little crazy given that you know it's 2021, but we find that text communication is, alone is not particularly effective for addressing absenteeism, whereas snail mail communication really is. And one reason for that, if you think about it, is like text messages are pretty ephemeral. They're really useful for driving in the moment, one-time action, especially if it's a click-through, actually do in the text. But when it comes to attendance, the behavior that we're working on prompting is behavior change that's not now, today, it's three days from now or three weeks from now when, you know, when a parent or the student, you know, runs into a challenge or a barrier. Right. So I just want to synthesize a few of the points that you made there. So one, focusing on cumulative rather than kind of in the moment or very recent attendance. The second is that there can be these kinds of unexpected effects around praising those who are already doing very well. They'll start to regress towards the mean. You also mentioned for those who are like way at the other end of the spectrum, if you set up an unattainable objective, it can backfire and make it really feel out of reach. And I want to come back to that point in a moment. This last point that you made is a really interesting one. So if the behavior that you're looking to nudge is kind of an ongoing behavior, Behavior, you want to send a durable nudge. If the behavior is ephemeral or kind of one time, you send a nudge that's ephemeral or one time. Kind of it crops up, you get the effect desired, and then it goes away. Let's dive back into this group that is really missing a lot of class. And for them, getting back up to the average can feel unattainable. What kind of nudges have you found are more successful in kind of bringing them back into the fold? Yeah. So with that group, as Steve you know, talked about earlier, with that group, there's a lot of different types of barriers that that group may be facing. And so what's interesting about that group is, you know, nudges are effective, but they're not. I mean, nudges are one tool. They are not a silver bullet. And so with that group, really what the goal is, is to be able to trigger a caring conversation between the family member and a teacher or support staff at the school. They can understand what are the challenges the student may be facing or what are the challenges the family may be facing and start working to address them. We do with that group is the goal is less about preventing absences and is more about you know, trying to create that conversation. And really the goal is for the parent or family member to be able to call. You're pivoting into something a little bit different. It sounds like what we've been talking about up until now is that the end point that we're nudging towards is 
the actionable element or like what it is that we want people to do in response to the nudge is to reduce discretionary absences. But now it sounds like there's a second problem that we're talking about, which is related, of course, but it's a different problem. And that's non-discretionary absences, ones that are kind of structurally enforced by elements of the system that just make it really, really hard for these students to participate in school. So let's shift gears a little bit because we're talking now about a different problem. And I gather here, as Steve mentioned earlier, there's kind of a different subset of the problem. It's not just chronic absenteeism. Here we're talking about real attendance gaps, that there are certain groups and certain communities who are structurally disadvantaged in terms of their ability to participate in the education system, their ability to be present in that learning environment. Let's shift now to those attendance gaps and start to unpack you know, once again, like what are the major causes of attendance gaps distinct from kind of chronic absenteeism for these discretionary reasons? It can be very wide ranging. Some of the things that Steve spoke about that can lead to disengagement, like lack of, you know, culturally responsive instruction um, when students don't have meaningful relationships to adults within the school, um, lack of enrichment opportunities, other things that might be impacting, you know, a single student, you know, when a student is struggling academically or behaviorally or they're being bullied or experiencing other social and peer challenges, you know, sometimes undiagnosed disability accommodations that aren't sufficient. And then there's other types of kind of systemic barriers. You know, Steve mentioned poor transportation or housing and food insecurity or insufficient access to needed services and being sick or, or health conditions. Um, so those are just some of the examples. Emily mentioned earlier, usually historically underserved communities are the ones that disproportionately feel those effects. And it's for all those reasons Emily just mentioned, those issues tend to compound in areas of poverty or mm -hmm. low income. It's very rarely like one of those things. What you often find with a student who's severely chronically absent is that there's many of those challenges that they're facing or their family is facing. Yeah, so you kind of have this intersection of challenges and they're all densely tied up together. In this case, the endpoint that we're looking to address here, or rather the journey that we want to catalyze, is like engaging with the school to start to identify and address to the extent possible some of these systemic issues. If that's really the endpoint then, what are some of the social or cognitive dynamics that create barriers to that engagement? There's doing really strong family engagement is tough. It's not as simple as just sending communication home. It's about building real relationships with families. And that's something that that is very doable, but is hard to do and, and kind of looks different from business as usual in most cases. Helping school staff learn how to do that is kind of one thing. From looking at like the research and literature, there's a few interventions that do show promise with this group and they're considered tier three interventions or deeper interventions. One example, is home visiting. So having a practice of um, you know, going and visiting a student and their family, you know, in their own home is something that can get around some of these barriers and help both develop a real relationship with the family. You know, you're showing up shows that you care. And it also can help get around some of the kind of more logistical barriers of school. School is not set up to accommodate the life of families typically. So it's like hours of communication are kind of limited. They might not dovetail with work hours. Transportation of how to get there can be challenging. So a lot of those types of barriers to family engagement can be overcome by something like home visiting. Another somewhat promising practice, there's some mixed evidence on this, but some promising practice is um, some forms of like one-on-one -on -one mentorship with the student, which also can help to be an entry point to better understanding some of these barriers 
barriers and then working to address them. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of it is around trust and establishing the trust that facilitates those kinds of conversations from happening. Relational trust is really the critical piece there. And again, especially in a lot of the communities that are just proportionately impacted by chronic absence, a lot of those families didn't have great school experiences when they were in school. So it's generational. And that can be really hard to unstick a problem like that without trust. Yeah, for sure. Let's shift gears now again a little bit and start talking about the impact of these interventions at scale or what it looks like to scale these up. Compared to other interventions that are candidates out there in the space, how difficult is it? How expensive is it to roll out the kinds of interventions that you're talking about? Let's start with the discretionary interventions that we were talking about before that are more around norm setting. How does one go about setting that up? How complicated is it? How expensive is it to run? All that kind of thing. So the good news on this one, it's the foundational place to start because it's very inexpensive, relatively speaking. So on average, it costs less than $10 per absence prevented to do the nudge work. That's the really good news. And also it's highly scalable because you're able to reach all students district-wide, whether it's a small district or even across very large systems with hundreds of thousands of students. First of all, like just a great place to start is communication about attendance and about absences is a good thing. I'm in a really good place to start. But when it comes to the nudges, there's some nuances and complexities that can make it challenging for schools to take this on themselves. So for example, the timing of the nudges is really important. If you send out the nudge kind of right before a vacation, for example, it doesn't end up having an effect. And the content of the nudge is really important. And you know, the example of that we shared earlier, like if you share the social comparison, that's really motivating for some students and really demotivating for others. And that's actually the reason that Everyday Labs, that we exist as a company, is because Dr. Rogers, when he first developed this intervention, he first worked to help a couple districts work to implement it themselves. And they found that they just didn't have the capacity to be able to do it with the right content, with the right timing, et cetera, for it to be most effective. And unlike some of these other interventions that we're about to talk about, it's something that can absolutely be outsourced. And so we want school staff to be focused on building meaningful relationships with families, not printing out a bunch of letters and customizing them and stuffing them into envelopes and like getting them out. Like that is just not the best use of their time. Before we move on from there, you mentioned about $10 per absence avoided. Mm -hmm. How does that compare to other alternatives out there in the ecosystem. The one mentoring, the best research on it, there's a couple of randomized control trials. Ballparks it at about $100 per absence prevented. So it's kind of a step change in terms of resourcing. And then the estimates for the home visiting is similar. So oftentimes the educators we work with are working with multi-tiered systems of supports where you have kind of your tier one base interventions that are for everybody that are like highly cost-effective. And then your tier two interventions for students that are at risk. And then your tier three interventions that are more expensive and more resource intensive, but also the most appropriate for students who are struggling the most and need the most support. So those more expensive interventions are sort of best reserved for those tier three situations, whereas nudges and also work on school climate and some of the other things, you know, some of the things we mentioned are things that are within the control of the school, like culturally responsive curriculum and working to improve school climate and make school a welcoming place. There's another example called breakfast before the bell. So offering free breakfast to all students, but 
to get free you know, but to get free breakfast, you need to be there, obviously. Um, that's another example of a there haven't yet been randomized control trials on it, but there's some promising evidence that it's effective. So those are the types of things that are less expensive, great tier one interventions. So it sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing is about really optimizing those tier one interventions, making sure that for the people who are going to benefit the most, it's really crafted in the way to get the most bang for your buck. And for those students who could potentially have a negative reaction to the nudge, for instance, or to, to use that language, we kind of dial it back and take a different approach. So really leaning into making it work as best it can where it will work, but also identifying those other cases where it's going to be less effective or potentially not effective at all and using those to prioritize other resources. Is that about the right picture? It was one addition. For the students who are you know, experiencing severe levels of, of chronic absenteeism, the nudges are, are actually still effective. It's just that the purpose of the nudge becomes more about sparking the request for help or making help easier to navigate. Um, so for example, we use a layer communication, we layer different communication modes. And one thing that we've built into the text version of our nudges, for example, is a support bot. And we also have a family support team where one of the main purposes of it is to both offer help and support to try to elicit the questions and the barriers from parents and then to help them navigate. Sometimes really hard to know where to go. So we actually, in some survey research that we've done, we found that over 30% of parents of high absence students didn't know where to go to find support. That is something that you know we can address with a nudge to then help spark, you know, help enable them to get the help that they need. So let's talk about the impact of these. So you talked about just now parents of really disengaged students. You were saying about 30% of them really just don't know where to go to access resources that are available to them and to get the support that they might find at the school through the kinds of interventions that you've been talking about. So home visiting and one-to-one mentorship. How much can we bring down that 30% figure? Yeah, I mean, that's something that we don't know yet, but I think... You know, our hypothesis is that there's certainly room for improvement. There's certainly, you know, room to provide support more easily. Another thing that the same survey found that also gets into the behavioral science principle of simplification, a twice as many parents of high absence students than lower absence students said that they wanted to receive more communication from their schools, that the communication they received was confusing. And as any parent my experience with school communication has certainly been that. It's a lovely email from our school principal that has an action that's buried in the middle of paragraph five that is just like really hard to find. If you think about it, like there's a few barriers there. First of all, it's an email. I might, that email address might not work for me anymore, or I might not be able to check it regularly, or it might be one of a hundred emails that's there. So I might miss it. You find a similar kind of reach challenge with text. So with text, particularly later in the school year, we find that phone numbers are out of date for a large number of students, particularly students living in low-income households where phone numbers can change pretty regularly over the course of a year. So there's like this reach problem. The second problem is just like, you know, simplification. We find in all of our testing that cutting words, you know, using formatting to highlight the key message and the action, all of that matters. And so there's a large part of this that, that can be addressed and improved by simply doing a better job of communicating with parents. You know, talking about impact. I don't think we've touched on yet that our nudge program is actually proven to reduce chronic absenteeism by 10 to 15%. So while that doesn't seem like a huge number, considering the complexity of the issue of chronic absence, it actually is quite an impact and frees, again, up 
staff and educators to do work that they need to do that's more intensive and then really so like a baseline impact right and then you can do the work that makes greater and greater impact yeah let's walk that storyline through a little bit so we talked earlier about one-sixth of students were chronically absent now in COVID times maybe a quarter maybe a third it's, it's hard to know exactly where the figure is so if the stat that you just that you just shared with us that like 10 to 15 percent of that problem can be taken care of with these you know these tier one nudges is that what you're talking about specifically is those tier one nudges around like discretionary absences and and norm setting and this kind of thing. So if we're thinking about 10 to 15% of the absenteeism problem, that gets us to, if we're talking about a quarter of all students and 10% of them, we're talking about two and a half percent. If it's 15%, then slightly more. So 3%-ish of all students in the country. Now, how many millions of students are there across the United States? So applied at scale, like we're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals who could really be you know, benefiting from this. That's exactly right. You know, on that like very aspirational note of like there's so much potential to scale this kind of thing up and to increase the impact of these kinds of approaches and these kinds of programs for a teacher or a principal or a school administrator or someone working in a department of education somewhere who's listening to this and saying like, oh my gosh, this finally sounds like something that can help me to get traction on this problem that's been so recalcitrant. What are the most useful first steps that they can take tomorrow morning to start actually taking some action on the insights that you've been sharing with us today? So the first one is to shift focus to make sure that we're addressing and not ignoring um, students who are at risk of becoming chronically absent, especially this year when there's twice as many students that are experiencing severe chronic absenteeism. That's where all the focus often is, you know, with very good reason. But by carving out a percentage of, you know, your day or your week or your team's time to also be looking at the students that are at risk, that can have a huge impact of like preventing students from slipping into becoming chronically absent. Another place to start is one great tactic is a phone call home um, when a student is absent. Instituting a home visiting program is like another great place to start. Those take more resourcing, obviously, you know, both of those things, but they can be hugely powerful. Something that takes a lot less resourcing is taking a look at how you're currently communicating about absences and to work to adjust it to make sure trying to be specific about how many absences the student has had communicating about cumulative absences and then also uh, really making the connection between like why attendance matters and also you know what's the impact on a student when they miss school and then finally looking for opportunities to simplify wherever possible in communication so cutting take every piece of communication and cut the words in half look at the reading le- look at making it accessible so take the reading level try to bring the reading level down to a fourth grade reading level strategies like that are another good place to start and then finally I'm really looking at family engagement practices and looking for opportunities to develop more meaningful relationships with families. Steve, what would you add to that? That's really critical with uh, addressing absenteeism is the solution has to be aligned to the root cause of the absence, right? So if you like try and use the wrong solution blanket to address absenteeism, you're not going to make an impact. And in order to really do that, you need good data. So I think really having clean data and using that then to identify trends and patterns specific to individual students 
students, but also at a school and district level is really critical because that's when you start to see those individual barriers and systemic barriers kind of where they intersect and where they may not. And I also think it's just not the quantitative data, right? It's the qualitative data. And that's what you get through those relationships and really coming to know your students and families. So that's why family engagement is so critical. You know, for talking to a school staff member, if you don't have access to data that allows you to kind of tier your students and understand which are the students that are missing more than 20% of school days so far, which are the students that have missed 10 to 20%, and which are the students that are missing 5 to 10%, go get that data because that is absolutely the starting point of enabling you to decide which students to prioritize and what interventions will be the best starting point. Great. That's super helpful. I think it's very concrete and tangible. So thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing your time and your insights today. This has been a really, really excellent conversation. Really helpful to understand the problem that we're trying to grapple with here and uh, and to offer some meaningful solutions. So thanks for the work that you're doing and thanks for sharing about that. Thank you for the opportunity. And one shameless plug before we leave, if any of your listeners are interested in learning more, come to everydaylabs.com. We're happy to have a conversation with anyone who'd be interested in potentially working with us. For sure. And for anyone who's listening, if you want to find the link to that, you can find it in the transcript of the episode on our website. Emily and Steve, thanks again very much and looking forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brooke, for shining a spotlight on such a really critical issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Decision Corner. For a transcript of this conversation and for other related content, head on over to our website thedecisionlab.com. While you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter and learn about our consulting services. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll see you back here soon.